Today's episode is brought to you by Timosil, the wellness drug. Timosil provides you with a feeling of wellness and camaraderie. Warning, Timosil may decrease your sex drive. Annyeong, welcome to I've Made a Huge Mistake in a Rest of the Podcast. I am your host, Darren, and with me today I have two guests. First of all, I have from the Turn to Page podcast, uh, Jesse Cooper. Hello, Jesse. Hello, how are you doing? And I have from the Shot Reverse Shot podcast, mm-hmm. is that correct, yep. Edwin? Uh, Edwin Davis. Hello, Edwin. Annyeong. See, you made that choice. <laughs> Although some people have made the choice, some people haven't made the choice to go with that. And today's episode that we are covering is Best Man for... I want to say for the gob, because I think that's funnier. Um, but I think for the sake of the pun, it's Best Man for the Job. Um, and it was written by Mitch Hurwitz and Richard Rosenstock. Mitch Hurwitz, obviously, is the creator of the show. Uh, Richard Rosenstock, I have spoken about at length on two episodes, because he created the uh, sitcom Flying Blind. Um, so listen to previous episodes if you want to hear me talk about that. And it is directed by uh, Lee Shalit Himmel. Um, I have a feeling I've said that completely differently when I covered public relations. Um, <laughs> but she is basically a TV director. She's been a TV director for quite a while. She directed stuff like Spin City. She's directed The Middle, The Nanny, Bernie Mac Show, uh, Stacked, Murphy Brown, Gilmore Girls. Uh, this is her second of three episodes that she directs. She'll direct uh, two more of season one, so this is the second of five from her. Uh, this episode was broadcast on the 4th of the 4th, 04. Um, so if you're American or British, it doesn't matter which way around you put that date. In fact, it doesn't matter which way you put any of those numbers in that, because it's all the fours. This, um, so that was like a, a week after Missing Kitty aired. Um, Missing Kitty aired out of order, which has created a nightmare for the last three episodes. <laughs> Um, and I'm going to give you the summary that is that comes with the DVD. Uh, Job tries to scare a company accountant who notices a discrepancy in the company's bank account and threatens to reveal the truth if asked to testify in court. Which I think is, that's the main story, isn't it? Is um, yeah. Ira Gilligan, which of course allows for a number of jokes about his surname. Which, uh, um, I, and I will have to admit, I kind of, like, I halfway got the IRA, IRA <laughs> connection, but it just dawned on me, some things that happened in the episode happened because of that, and I feel a little dumb for that, because that seems to be, like, the main thrust of the episode. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, obviously, just calling him Gilligan, uh, just allows for, like, a lot of jokes about that, but then also naming him... Um, uh, individual retirement plan or individual retirement account um, or arrangement or however they've been called. Yeah, like that's a second joke. Um, yeah. But um, 
over here, naming him, talking about the IRA, has a slightly different connotation. Oh, to yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't think the show had intended, but yeah. I mean, um, I'm going to be honest with you, Gilligan's Island, never a thing in this country, unless Edwin's going to um, say something different. Edwin? I definitely remember watching episodes of it when I was very, very young. I couldn't tell you what channel it was, but certainly in the early days of Satellite... There were whole channels which would just buy up old US sitcoms and just show them because no one had the money to make original programming and it was fairly cheap to get hold of shows from the 60s and 70s. But it was very much the sort of show where yeah. growing up, I was one of the only one of my friends who knew what the hell Gilligan's Island was. <laughs> I mean, like you say, like a satellite channel. So obviously it's, it was, you know, it, that's not like ITV or BBC, is it? Like it's it's just a small, yeah. Yeah. So Gilligan's, um, whereas I'm, yes, Gilligan's Island, uh, for me anyway, is, I mean, it was, uh, I'm not like 60, so obviously it was before my time, but, uh, we had a channel called TV land, uh, which you, I don't know if you have any reference for. You, you still have that channel oh, because oh. the Jim Gaffigan show okay. shows on it. We, ha- we had a, we, it was a different format really at that point. It wasn't making original content, but it was basically nothing but old television shows like bewitched uh, uh i love genie uh three's company i dream of genie i dream of genie no i love genie well <laughs> i love i love lucy i love lucy well you know before my time <laughs> uh but you know all that would play and i would uh, gilligan's island would play occasionally on there too uh i think the only reason i'd watch yeah. it is because it came on before bewitched and uh, i dream of genie because i'd watch those yeah. a lot but you're a big fan of um, a military man keeping a woman in caged in a, a small lamp. Yeah, yeah, that just your, um... just a big fan. Yeah. It's, it's... <laughs> Which... um, yeah, or 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 a wife cuckolding her her husband by being a witch and constantly changing things without him realizing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm 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 yeah. all about you know spouses having uneven power <laughs> and everything and. <laughs> Which, uh, but also like Gilligan's Island was just a huge joke, cultural touchstone joke, basically. I mean, I I like kind of found out about it first when uh, they have the scene in Days of Confused where they're discussing different like uh, episodes, uh, and they're just like they're, they're naming them all off like the different types of the different shows that have happened of Gilligan's Island. So that's how I that's how I knew about it. Um, obviously now with the internet I'm more familiar with it but even then I was like what on earth are these kids in this crazy film talking about yeah there's um, that whole uh, joke about like coconut radios that would pop up in a lot of things that was like clearly a um, Gilligan's Island thing because the professor uh, okay made, like he basically yeah. yeah he basically like jury rigged everything and there was coconut radios that they would try to held down ships with and a wacky adventure and there's that joke happen. in the Simpsons about making a coconut Nintendo yeah. system so it was definitely something that would get referenced a lot in, in other shows. <laughs> um, anyway, let's talk about the show we're talking about, which is Arrested Development. And first of all, I'll ask Edwin, um, did you watch the show when it was airing? Over here, it was airing on BBC Two. Um, did you catch it then, or did you catch it when it was on DVD? Or when did you come to the show? I watched it when it aired on BBC Two, although I the first episode of it I watched was the season one finale, which... Like every episode of the show aired at late on a Sunday night, early Sunday morning. So it's like 
11.30, something like that was the time, wasn't it? Yeah, so prime time <laughs> slot for uh, one of the greatest shows of the last <laughs> 10 years, getting very much the Seinfeld and the Larry, uh, Larry Sanders show treatment. Um, but it was a... Uh, I caught it. I had... A, I think I got about 50% of it, because obviously it was my first exposure to the show, so I didn't quite get everything, but it felt so unlike any show I'd seen before, any British or American show, really. Like It, it kind of reminded me of the UK office, but it was a lot more fast-paced and manic, so as soon as the DVD for season one became available, I just rushed out and grabbed it and watched it all over the course of a weekend when I was, uh, I think, over the summer, just before I went to university. And then from then, it was appointment viewing to watch it, it as episode aired even though they were still not exactly in a prime uh, slot for viewing uh and jesse did you watch arrested development while it was on the air or did you catch it later uh i think i watched some of it you said it uh the i mean the episode that came out today came out when i was like around 12 or something i definitely remember watching it i don't like i have i don't think i watched it straight through knowing what seasons and, and actually getting all the running jokes or anything until probably a few years later like when i was around 17 or so but i definitely watched a lot of it uh, i remember the uh the the episode where the hermando joke was the running joke where a uh, hermano. hermano yeah like were they uh yeah with that that like i remember watching that one a lot like i think that one came on reruns a lot and uh but i always liked it yeah um like it kind of instilled a uh everlasting love of uh Oh man, I forget her name. It's like Ali Shoka. Ali Shoka. Yeah, uh, and uh, Michael Sarah and me. Like I just, they, they can't do any wrong in my eyes because it's like <laughs> they're just so good. <laughs> like, and I watched them. I guess at the prime age make them like good forever. Yeah, I'd say if you're like twelve, you're kind of pretty much around their age. Yeah. Um, I think they're like fourteen in the show when it starts. Yeah. So they would have been born nineteen ninety. I remember watching something it. Like that. I remember watching it live. I think the third season, or something. That's when we got cable in a a box to record stuff with. Well, let's move into the episode then. We've got two kind of really big plots. Well, actually, one really big plot, which is Ira and there's some missing money. Uh, Michael is trying to find out where the missing money is, and then next to that you have the bachelor party and. Michael trying to prove that he's a fun guy <laughs> uh, by taking by taking George Michael fishing and kind of in between that you've also got uh, like George Senior. He only kind of appears in a couple of scenes, but he's trying he's trying to con- he's trying to do what he always does, which is he's getting between the brothers and trying to kind of control them. Um, and obviously, all that leads to the bachelor party. And then next to that, we have I mean, we have a little subplot with. Um, the juice and um uh, not uncle juice but just normal juice um and kind of the tension between an young and buster which kind of also plays into the the bachelor party stuff um but then the kind of the real b plot is <laughs> dr funke's 100 percent natural good time family band solution um, uh, the narrator says yeah, and Timo Sill. Well, not Timo Sill anymore. Or is it Xanatan? Man, you Which for, one is Florazine? Current? I can't remember. Wait, no, Zematil was. Florazine is the current. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all these wacky names for drugs that basically hurt you, but they also make you feel better while hurting you. <laughs> let's let's save all the the funny names for when we tackle the Doctor Funke's 
hundred percent natural good time family man solution subplot because uh, you know there's a lot of fun to be had with that one, um, and that kind of interlocks with the bachelor party stuff because George Michael um, <laughs> wants to join the band um, because of his good timekeeping. Uh, but also, he keeps good time. And those are not the same thing, despite what George Michael seems to think. Um, punctuality is not the same as being a metronome. So, let's start at the beginning of the episode anyway, because we are introduced to Ira Gilligan, who is played by uh, Michael Hitchcock, the third of the um, kind of... His rep company? Yeah, I would, yeah, I'd say they're a rep company, aren't they, for... Um, uh, I'm forgetting his name now. This is frustrating as hell. I should have written it down. Christopher Guest. Christopher Guest. That's it. I was going to say Lord Hayden Guest, the <laughs> third, but yeah. So they're, they're, he's, he's the third of, a, of 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 the Guest rep rep company. Basically, he's there to tell Michael, um, he's the company accountant, that um, that money is missing. Basically, it's not where it should be. Um, and as with all kind of things to do with the kind of the ongoing incarceration of George Senior. This plot has relatively little to do with anything. When the episode ends, no one will ever mention this money again. Before this episode, no one ever talked about this money. So it's really not that important. It's just uh, an amusing way to introduce a character named Gilligan. I really like how uh, George Senior is immediately like, yeah, I probably did it. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I messed up a lot. I don't care. <laughs> Just get me out of here. I thought that was interesting in that it kind of plays into a, the long-running kind of arc of the series about how involved George Senior actually was with the malfeasance of the Bluth Company. The fact that he wasn't aware of it either says that he's done a lot of bad things or that he really wasn't that involved. Either way, it's funny, but this time round, I kind of that's that's what struck me about that particular scene and his kind of uh, nonchalance about the criminal activity he's been involved in. Well, I mean, you know, he has uh, dipped his hand in the kitty a few times, mm. um, uh, as as we'll find out at next year's Christmas party. But, yeah, I mean, like, at this particular point, George Sr. kind of is getting tired of being in prison. Um, and I don't know how you guys feel about the George Sr. in prison stuff. I always find it quite funny, because... He, you know, he doesn't want to help Michael, He, but he also wants to get out of prison. And those two things are kind of at odds with each other. So he's really not helping himself because, you know, there's there's been times when, like, he wouldn't give up where the flight records were. He wouldn't he wouldn't let people like know information that would basically help him get out of prison. And it's kind of it's always kind of weird that he he seems to put messing or controlling Michael above his own. Like, um, you know, getting himself out of prison. <laughs> and it always seems kind of weirdly counterproductive. I, um, like, this uh, this version of George Sr. Uh, in prison tends to be the one I think of more than I think about yeah. uh, him hiding in the attic or him in... Under house arrest. Under house arrest. Like, I always think of him in prison. Yeah. It's, it's... Yeah. Um... I don't know. It's, it's and I mean it, they do a lot of really good setup for jokes and stuff through like the television, like <laughs> through like the him coming in through satellite and everything, and throughout this whole season and everything. So it's the most iconic iteration of of George Senior, I think. But I also feel I've always felt like it's the most limited because you can only have 
so many members of the Blue family come and visit him, and they, during the first season, they basically have every different uh, iteration of of the family kind of come and visit him. Some stay in in prison with him for a few days and things like that. So they, <laughs> yeah, they. I think they got everything they could out of it, but they were smart enough to realize that they needed to break him out of prison and give him a little bit more room to kind of roam around and to think of new ways of making Jeffrey Tambor more central to what was going on as opposed to just struggling to think of reasons to get him to be interactive with other characters. We start in Michael's office and there's a problem with a the thermostat and the office is um well they start actually in the boardroom and it's freezing cold but the thermostat is in Michael's office where it is boiling hot. And they do this really quick switch where uh, the conversation will keep going, but they'll quickly switch between the office and the boardroom. So Gilligan says, I think I'm catching a cold. And Michael is like, you're not catching a cold. And Gilligan says, I know my body. And then they quickly switch to Michael's office. And Ira goes, this is like the bayou in here. And Michael goes, well, I tried to tell you that. And he goes, well, I guess I just had to find out for myself. And then they immediately switch back to the boardroom. The the thing I love about this is, in the business, the the business of TV, when you make a quick cut between someone saying something and then that thing happening, or saying they don't want to do something and then quickly cutting to them doing it, that is referred to as a Gilligan cut. Because that was apparently something they used to do on Gilligan's Island a lot, where if you quickly go to someone being like, I don't want to go to the dance, I'm not going to the dance, cut to, they're at the dance. That's called a Gilligan cut. And so the fact that they are using Gilligan to, to actually say, let's go to the boardroom, let's go to the office, and they're actually making switches, because he's, he's literally, in, when they switch back to the boardroom, he's in mid-sentence where he says, anyway, this isn't the first discrepancy with your father's books. And they make the Gilligan cut after the first word. So it's quite, it's quite funny that, you know, there's that little kind of bit of inside stuff going on whilst also it's just hilarious to see them cutting between the two locations. I don't understand how they're able to pack so many layers of jokes on top of one (laughs) joke because I didn't even know that and that makes it even better. Uh, which I mean, another thing I think was really cool is like they do that whole like you know the comedy rule of three things, but they did it with three different people, basically doing the same thing. Yeah. And it, like, like for some reason that third time with Tobias like showing up with their shirt off in the in the office like made the joke hit even harder. Like that that's just a really tight like minute or so of comedy that I think would be perfect in just about anything. Yeah. Well, we we get both both of, of Gilligan's names where he says. Uh, where Michael says, no one's asking you to lie. And Job says, whoa, 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 you're asking Gilligan not to lie? And Ira says, please call me Ira. I don't like Gilligan. And Job says, who doesn't like Gilligan? Is it cold in here? And then they immediately cut back to <laughs> the um, back to Michael's office with Gilligan gone at that point. Um, so now, now Job is asking for the switch in, in office, basically. Um, and this is where he sets up the, the, the big kind of storyline, which is... Um, the bachelor party. Although the strange thing is, you know, Michael says, um, I mean, in his kind of most (laughs) kind of backhanded compliment way, he says to Job, So listen, you've been married two weeks now. (laughs) Sticking. Let's pretend it's a good thing. I guess this makes me your best man and I would like to throw you a bachelor party. And it's such a kind of backhanded way of, of offering it. But then the funny thing is, Job seems to already have the offer of a bachelor party 
from George Senior before Michael makes this offer. Um, and he seems to have already turned it down. Um, although Job says, I don't think she'd go for that, which is a weird, <laughs> which is a weird way of referring to his wife. Um, which... And then when he, you know, he talks about, you know, he says, I've talked to dad and it was a stupid, it was stupid to get married in the first place and I've got to get rid of her. Like, I'm, I'm sure other people brought this up before, but like this scene is like a really good example of how, uh, how Michael thinks he's like the best guy in the world, but really he's just as much of an, uh, just as much of an a-hole as the rest of his family. He's just has it more together. I think the funny thing is like, you know, him offering for the bachelor party and then him saying dad's already said no to it. <laughs> Like that, it it shows that that Job is always seeking the approval of George Senior, and he can't ever seem to quite get it. Dis, you know, despite doing everything that he his dad wants, he still can't get him to kind of respect him in any kind of way. Um, to be fair, I would I would really respect uh, Job in just about any way, <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> He seems to just be a walking he's only, disaster. He's he's only a part time magician. Um, yeah, and and I I love that um, you know Job suggests trying to break him and his wife up, which it should be noted, and I'm I've noted it in the previous two episodes in which she appeared was actually Will Arnett's wife at the time. Um, oh, were you were you not aware that Will Arnett was married to Amy Poehler? No, while they were shooting Arrested Development. And that's why when she's referred to as Job's wife, she literally is Job's wife. Well, this is just a whole nother layer of stuff that we put on top of it for you now, isn't it, Jesse? Yes. Like, um, I don't, like, writing this script must have been, like, real hard. Because <laughs> I could have just went through, like, with all the really funny jokes, but then layering it up with all the other jokes at the same time. And we get our only real mention post-Beef um, Consom of Marta. Where Job says, and it should be noted that this is a shot that's on the back of his head and it's a ADR line, where he says, Why not? You did it with me and Marta. You had no problem with that guy. You know what? Lie to her. Tell her that I'm insensitive. <laughs> oh, I love your response. She's like, like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. Which, which is like, <laughs> and then I love Michael's, you know, where he goes, um, Maybe something about how you can never confront people and you need somebody else to clean up your own messes. And Job goes, see, that's great. And that's just off the top of your head. <laughs> um, I love that Job thinks that Michael is making that up <laughs> rather than just saying the truth to his face. And then this is when Tobias enters, much like the same way that Job did, um, going, Michael, Job, I was just in the neighborhood. Good Lord, it is sweltering in here. And then they switch the boardroom, of course. Um, and then Tobias sets up the the kind of B plot for this episode, which is um, the, the the good time family band solution. Now, this contains one of my favourite quotes, possibly from the whole series, <laughs> where um, after describing that he's hit a bit of a rough patch, Michael asks when it started, and Tobias says, "Well, I don't want to blame it all on 9/11, but it certainly didn't help." <laughs> <laughs> I think also in uh, the scene. Well, also the like the second little vignette thing where he's in the uh, cold boardroom, like he's wearing the most like magnificent yeah. like trench coat that. Looks <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's mentioned at least on the Wikipedia page that it's a woman's trench coat, and I think it's one that's been seen worn by yeah. a female Blue Company employee at some point. So 
it's not only just a great visual gag, but again, it's one of those extra layers of pointing to uh, Tobias's possible uh, sexual confusion. And then, of course, this is when Tobias says, can we go back to your office, please? And we get the final Gilligan cut, <laughs> which takes us back to Michael's office. And David Cross is sitting there topless. Um, and he says he wants to reunite the band. And this is when the narrator explains, impossibly um, one of the best kind of... I mean, essentially, it's just exposition, but it's done so well and has so many jokes thrown in where um, I like that the narrator responds as well to Michael saying, oh, no, because he goes, oh, no, was right. Which is <laughs> such a great kind of like... And they talk about how in the mid-90s... In the mid-90s, Tobias formed a folk music group with Lindsay and Maybe called Dr. Fuke's 100% Natural Good Time Family Band Solution. The group was underwritten by the Natural Life Food Company, a division of ChemGrow and Alan Crane acquisition, and part of the Squim Group. <laughs> Their motto was simple. We keep you alive. And I just love each of those jokes. Um, not least of which is Alan Crane is actually a shout-out to a uh, an Arrested Development fan that sent some cookies to the writer's room. Oh. Um, and they, they, they wrote her a thank you note and gave her a copy of the script and they put her name... Um, into the uh, <laughs> into that little joke, um, so it's, uh, that's like a nice a nice touch. But I just love I just love the name Squim, um, <laughs> as like an as a, like an overarching kind of like chemical company that controls tons of different things that you don't realize. I think Squim is like such a great name, um, almost... and I just love stuff like a division of ChemGrow, which is like. I don't know. It's such, such so well observed. And with the 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 um, the hundred percent natural good time family band solution, we get introduced to the world of wellness and the different types of drugs that um, get sold. The first of which here is Xanotab, which may cause dry mouth, hair loss, and an overly alert feeling, and in some cases may diminish your sex drive. And that last part is quite important because. Someone will be taking something similar to Xanatab in season three, and only for that final side effect. Um, yeah, I just and I like as well that Xanotab sounds like the kind of kind of drug that would be pushed that kind of would have this vague idea of what it's meant to do. Like it's meant to make you feel a little bit better. And I just I even like the use of just little there. Like, this is not a drug that will fully alleviate any kind of depression or anything. It will just make you feel a little bit better. I should also say all the songs that are in this episode are fantastic. Like, um, the composer whose name escapes me at this particular time. Um, he composed so many really good... David Schwartz. David Schwartz. Schwartz, that's it, of course. He did so many great songs. Like the soundtrack is fantastic as it is. Like just the background music and all that kind of stuff, the scoring, that is great. But like every single song is just like so perfect. Um, you know, I mean, we're a couple of episodes away, but something like "All You Need Is Smiles" is just so funny. <laughs> like just so completely, just insanely funny because it's it's just a perfect parody of a song that would just talk about people smiling. And then, of course, you know, you have Xanatab, you have Timosil. Those songs are just so great. Um, you know, Mock Trial, just everything. Like, every, every song that uh, that David Schwartz does for this show is great. But, you know, obviously, because we've got the 
the, the Good Time Family Band Solution in this episode, we get to see a kind of a, a showcase. Um, and I think it should also be said that uh, David Cross, um, you know, you could you could obviously write these songs and have anyone sing them, but I think David Cross and Portia de Rossi, they really sell, like, the particularly in the flashback, they sell, like, the whole kind of um, hippie-ish vibe that they were going for, particularly whenever they finish songs and they compliment each other. <laughs> They're really nice to each other because that contrasts so sharply with their relationship that runs throughout the whole show. And I just wanted to mention that uh, Danielle, I'm going to say Kipola, or it could be Sipola, I don't know how you pronounce that surname, um, portrays the young maybe, and she does a pitch-perfect impression of a kind of uh, bored Alia Shawkat, but like five years younger. Um, and she will actually return for the, for at least a couple more times where they have a young maybe. Um, so they, they much like the um, whenever they do flashbacks to the young like Michael and Job and Buster, those actors they kept for the entire like run of the, the first three series. Clearly because they knew they had some really good actors uh, on their hands. It's nice when they can actually get like really good like younger version of characters because like so many shows get the, get it wrong. It's just like this is a young white child, close enough and. You know, whenever they actually get the look and well, can actually act like the older actors, you know, younger, it's such a rarity. You can see kind of Alison Jones's influence on that as the casting director. She's obviously someone who everyone cites as being one of the really important people in comedy over the last 10, 15 years because of all the shows that she cast and films she's worked on. Yeah. I think she clearly has a huge, uh, she has a, an amazing sense for who would be good for a role and, and for matching people up in that way. And it's great that that extends to something as small as a young version of Maybe, who I think has seen maybe three or four times over the course of the whole show. She's seen three times. in. She's seen once more in this season and then once more in the second season. Mm. But yeah, she, was, she is like, if you look at the shows that, that she's cast, they are kind of, like a lot of it is like really, like she really gets good actors into the correct roles. And of course, after Arrested Development, she would later go on to cast uh, Veep. Oh. So, uh, yeah, wor- working with uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Tony Hale again. Let's not go down too far in the hole of talking about Veep, because we still haven't actually uh, got into the, the plots here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I could talk um, about Veep for probably days. <laughs> okay, start your own podcast, Jesse. I will. <laughs> um, so, Tobias lets uh, Michael know that there's a wellness convention in town. Uh, that wellness convention will be taking place at the same hotel where the bachelor party will eventually be in town. And Tobias uh, wants Michael to, to ask Lindsay to rejoin the band. And Michael says, why don't you ask her? And Tobias says, oh, I would, but she just doesn't take me seriously. And as he says that line, we cut to a two shot <laughs> with David Cross sitting there topless in Michael's boiling hot office. And that's where we end that act. But yeah, so that has basically set up everything that will be in the episode. We've got Ira set up, we've got Michael and Job and the Bachelor Party set up, and we've got the uh, the family band um, set up. Um, and of course, this is where Michael, he goes to his dad and asks where the money is, you know, if it's missing. And obviously this is where George kind of says, yeah, I probably stole it. Um, and we get to see a few little flashbacks here where... Uh, you see Gilligan being like, getting in the way of George and kind of annoying him, but 
he's not really doing anything. He's just walking normally like a human being. And George Senior just bumps into him and gets mad. And he just basically keeps yelling Gilligan at him. And then obviously, you know, this is where we, this is where we find out that George Senior is like, who the hell? Who the hell is Gilligan? Basically, he doesn't realise that Ira and Gilligan are the same person. And he suggests that taking, you know, he takes Ira fishing. Um, and this is where we start to get the little subplot with um, Michael and George Michael going fishing, uh, where George insists that, um, you know, <laughs> that he's he's not fun. He's like, I'll get Job. He's the one who's fun. And Michael is trying to insist that he is plenty of fun, which I, I don't fully believe. I, I, I think the problem with Michael is he's basically committed himself so much to following in his father's footsteps that he doesn't really know how to not be at work um, and he just kind of seem to find it hard to just switch off and enjoy himself whereas his siblings seem to have a problem doing the opposite in that they are constantly relaxed and they never seem to want to work so but uh, I think it's funny actually that this is kind of the point at which George Senior is you know he's already t he's already told Job not to have the bachelor party and now he's he's trying to use Michael to to somehow get get Gilligan and yet he doesn't realize you know like he, as he's suggesting it he then says you're no fun so I don't know why he bothered to try and suggest that Michael do it knowing that he's not any fun um it's, it's a curious thing I think he realizes that Michael is the only one who'd be competent enough to carry off a plan like that unfortunately yeah. he's too uh moral and and decent to actually go through with it but and Job is completely uh, amoral to an extent, but also incompetent. So yeah. the, the various pieces of the blue ch children never quite mesh together for George uh, George Senior's plans. Yeah, and of course, you know, the the two two out of his three sons are always trying to get his love, whereas one of them has enough love from the other parent that he doesn't really seem that bothered. <laughs> Um, mm. So he, he it's, just, it's like now George, George Senior can never get all of his children to do all of the things that he wants all the time. I think this episode is is quite a good showcase for how easily manipulated all of the Blue children are by their parents, because Job is literally told what to do by his dad and reverses himself multiple times in the episode because he tells him to. <laughs> Buster is obviously in the thrall to his mother and only kind of breaks out once he's high on juice, juice, <laughs> and like my. Michael resists direct kind of pleas to do anything, but he's only slightly goaded by his dad saying he's not fun to decide that he's going to take his son fishing, which is something neither of them want to do. So I think it's interesting that you get to see the kind of the whole spectrum of the family in this episode. And speaking of uh, manipulation of a kind, uh, we get more of Lucille and her... Um, I mean, she's doing this within earshot of Lindsay, so I don't know if this is deliberate, but when she meets Job's wife, she says, I have always wanted a daughter. And a blonde. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, She's that, just such a cruel, like that, cruel thing to be saying. That shot to Lindsay, just like that one like little like half second shot to Lindsay whatever she said that was priceless yeah and it's also a nice bit of foreshadowing as well yes in terms yeah. of uh, various relations within oh, the family oh, yeah, because we know oh we we know that Lucille never had a daughter <laughs> <laughs> are all these things suddenly becoming clear to you Jesse 
You know, it's. I did really watch. Uh, uh, I watched this kind of before I had a more critical <laughs> eye towards things. Well, I don't know. I don't know that that, that that that's a deliberate line, but yeah, in later seasons, you can read it as that. Um, and this is where mm. we get a little bit now of the rivalry between Anyong and Buster, um, and <laughs> and this is probably my favourite saying of the word Anyong. Apart from apart from the first time when, um, which in shock and awe when um, Miss Bailey and Michael go to a Korean restaurant and they say Anyong and everyone in the restaurant says Anyong at them, like that's that's like a funny like quick joke. But this Anyong here, where um, Buster says, "Where did Anyong get that juice box?" and Anyong goes, as he always does, Anyong, and then there's such a long silence as Lucille just stares at him like super like confused and angry and so many emotions on just uh, on Jessica Walt's face there she's just like really angry that this kid just keeps saying this one word over and over again when anyone mentions his name Uh, and Lucille says "Um, those are for his soccer team no sugar for you you just get more awful (laughs) (laughs) which again like that's we've only had we've only had two lines from Lucille and she's managed to insult uh, a different child in each and then of course you know Buster's like hey adopted brother um, which just is like my favourite kind of tick that Tony Hale kind of gives to Buster the, the kind of hey um, and I, <laughs> I love when he says um, it's, it's nice that Anyong is becoming as spiteful as the rest of his siblings um, because after Buster asks for a hit of the juice box he literally drinks the entire box in one go <laughs> Uh, kind of staring at him, just like staring at Buster being like kind of super, like kind of obvious about what he's doing. And then we get one of my favourite types of joke that the show does, which is the narrator saying something over the top of a character saying the exact same thing. And with this, he does it with the, just as well because the joke of having such a long title. Um, When he says the narrator... He says, um, <clears throat> Michael tried to convince Lindsay to rejoin Dr. Funky's 100% natural good time family band solution. And as he says the title of the band, you can see Michael is saying the, the words as well. And then Lindsay immediately goes, Dr. Funky's 100% natural good time family band solution was a nightmare for me. She says the title like again. So I just love having such a long title, but having it said back to back by the narrator and Lindsay. As if the narrator saying it over Michael was to kind of save it time. And then Lindsay just kind of ruins that by <laughs> saying it all over again. Like, I kind of admit uh, one of my favorite types of jokes and stuff is just making titles and stuff way too long and saying them <laughs> all the way through every single time. And this episode yeah. hit that spot. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and we find out that, you know, Lindsay only enjoyed the time because she was whacked out on Xanatab. And I love how Michael actually says the kind of like the line from the song where he goes, I thought Xanatab was supposed to make everything feel a little bit better. Um, and then, of course, Lindsay says, for 15 minutes, then it burns when you pee and your marriage goes to hell. And I, I kind of... I like, I like that basically every supplement that they list has such terrible side effects that you would never take it. But also it kind of speaks to the... It's kind of a satire on how... You know, supplements in the U.S. aren't regulated by the FDA, so people can kind of sell these and say they do anything. And um, so it's kind of a clever little satire on that. Um, And this is where we find out that maybe when she was in Boston, her parents, you know, kept splitting apart. And every time they did, they spend way too much time with her. And so 
she's willing to keep the to get the band together just to stop her parents from wanting to spend time with her. Um, and this is where George Michael reveals his um, his <laughs> I don't know what you call it his skill as a uh, as the human metronome. Um, <laughs> and he says, "I'm never late for things." And maybe he says, "Yeah." But I think punctuality is slightly different from rhythm. Um, and we will get introduced to something that essentially becomes like a huge plot point in season four, which is George Michael playing a woodblock. Um, yeah, and it's kind of like just tossed, tossed off here as like a side joke. But that will essentially form the backbone of like ten episodes of season four is the idea that George Michael wants to play a woodblock. Um, or more importantly, wants to make an app that sounds like a fake woodblock. This, like, <laughs> it's just so it's just the fact that that one like pretty much throw ray line like was just so important later on, and I don't I don't know how they managed to turn that to a whole entire plot of like you know six or so hours. But it's <laughs> the writing on the show is just I'm so amazing like. This show spoiled me for so many, like, other comedy shows on TV. And at this point, we get Job's wife meets up with Dr. Funky. <laughs> so she addresses him. And then she says, of Dr. Funky's 100% natural good time family band solution. And she says, I saw you in 96. You sang about a supplement called Timosil. So this is the second supplement we've been introduced. And Tobias, of course, says, ah, oh, Timosil. And, he get, and she goes, I mean, you just nailed me. It was like you knew every side effect I was going through at the time. And then we flash back to possibly my favourite song, which is the... There's no I in Timosil, at least not where you'd think. Which I think is <laughs> such a great... Uh, and of course, <laughs> Tobias gets a chance to describe side effects as well when he says Timosil's been discontinued. The sense of wellness it created in relationships was merely the first sign of a complete pituitary shutdown. <laughs> and which seems a little extreme, but I, I still love it. It's just one of my favourite things. You know, Michael meets Job's wife and he tries to kind of, you know, split them up. But he finds out that Job has basically described Michael as himself. <laughs> so, um, mm. you know, the description that she got was basically Job describing himself but pretending that that was Michael um, and then at this point we realise that there now is going to be a bachelor party um, and Job says in a really weird way um, I mean Michael actually says you're not letting dad lead you around by the nose again are you and then Job says I've got the marriage and none of the good parts so far it's been all chain and no ball <laughs> doesn't make any sense I don't know why he'd be happy about that like, why is he Why is he happy to have none of the good parts of a marriage? And then, obviously, you know, Michael says, you're not giving your best man a whole lot of prep time. And Job says, Dad can handle it. And this is obviously where we find out that, you know, George Sr. has decided he will make himself the best man from prison. Um, which will be achieved by a, a, t a television with a camera on top. Uh, something which we, we, we did previously in public relations... Uh, which was directed by the same director that directed this episode, so uh, maybe this is uh, this is her signature. Um, and then, of course, you know, um, <laughs> Job goes to say, "Don't worry, you're still." And Michael says, "Invited," and he goes, "No, I was going to say I, I still want you to be the guy solving my problems, uh, but let me talk to Dad about that invite situation." <laughs> um, 
which is <laughs> such a such a great kind of um, thing. Um, and now we get one of the rare times that Job actually visits George Senior in prison by himself. Um, he's been he's been like with the family, but um, and the last time he went, I think he went to tell George Senior that he was using George Michael to break into the records office, and then um, mm. <laughs> then George Senior strangled him to the strains of "No touching, no touching." Um, so they're talking here about the narcoleptic stripper, which of course is a great kind of joke. <laughs> um, and we get, we get a flashback to the, to the yacht club where, um, George is, you know, he says clearly what is meant to be the line for the stripper to jump out of the cake, but she just kind of falls out half asleep. Um, you know, and the, and the plan is to get Gilligan drunk, to have him pass out, uh, to have the... The, the narcoleptic stripper, you know, pass out in the darkened space and then to put some blood around her or, you know, corn syrup mixed with a little red dye. And then that will convince Ira to leave the country. And um, <laughs> George Senior says, um, that's what I got those honeymoon tickets. You never thank me for those. And Job says, oh, sorry, I meant to. I was going to. And um, so basically everything about this bachelor party is being conceived by George Senior not only to like manipulate Job once more, but also to tr- attempt to manipulate Ira. Um, although obviously um, <laughs> he's put the wrong person in charge. If he expects if he expects Job to be able to carry this out, <laughs> because um, mm-hmm. you know that's just barking up the wrong tree there. When when Job talks about how you know they're going to have the real party, the real kind of like bachelor party, and George is like. Uh, are you kidding? When I, I get out of here, you're going to throw me the biggest party this town's ever seen, all right? <laughs> and uh, obviously, once again, he's being selfish and kind of disregarding um, Job's feelings. And then, of course, we get a little scene with uh, the, the, the the Good Time Family Band Solution, which are not having a good time. Um, as they try to remember <laughs> the, the, the new song, which is Euphorazine. I think, does Lindsay sing Xanotab at one point? She sings the wrong line. And Tobias is like... Yeah, they yeah. fall out over that. And Lindsay's like, well, if I was allowed to have a Xanotab, I'd remember it's just for a Z. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like how Tobias, you know, he, he says that... We are pushers, not takers. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, I love, as they go back into singing the song, um, <laughs> George Michael enters, tapping on his woodblock, and I love... The anger that David Cross puts into when he says, "What is that noise?" And then he kind of turns around and sees George Michael, <laughs> and he's like, "We don't need woodblock." And I, I like how um, George Michael is like, "I just thought I'd join in on the fun," which is funny because this rehearsal has not been fun in any way. There is no joy between <laughs> any of these people. You know, they, they are not a fun time. Uh, sorry, they're not a good time family at this particular point. Uh, they're just kind of like uh, mostly arguing. Is it also during that scene where we get the brief callback to Maybe's graph of her time with spent with either parents? Yeah, and it's for like half a second <laughs> and she realizes that all her time is going to go. And I think that's such a great callback because the first time they use that graph, it's kind of funny, but then when you have it sped up for like half a second and included, it's so great at illustrating how her mind works and how she is 
always trying to think of what's best for her, and what's best for her is her parents leaving her alone. <laughs> and they also quick they speed the music up as well, so that as it shoots onto the screen, mm. the music is <laughs> like twice as fast. Um, and of course, that's where she says, "Let's take you from loose stool." One, two, and <laughs> <laughs> which I think is great. And then obviously, you know, um, this is where Lindsay takes the euphorazine, and, and Tobias says, "That's not real happiness." And Lindsay says, "It's better than what we've got now." Um, and as they go off arguing, uh, Michael comes home and he decides to tell George Michael that they're going on a fishing trip. To which George Michael says, why? What did I do? Um, because obviously fishing trips are seen as punishment. And George Michael says, I thought you hated fishing. And Michael says, no, I hated doing it with my dad. Uh, and then obviously they, <laughs> they talk about how they got to go to the hotel, get up at 4am, slap on an old seasick patch, and then we can get there out in the choppy ocean and we're going to catch ourselves a little lunch. <laughs> then... George Michael's kind of deflated. Oh, we get to eat it. And then Michael's saying, After we got it. <laughs> basically, I can understand why George Michael would not be keen. You know, aside from like the whole getting up at 4am thing. But I just I just love how kind of sad he seems immediately. <laughs> the idea of going on this fishing trip. Michael also seems to have a look of dawning horror on his face as well. As he contemplates <laughs> having to do this thing that he clearly has hated all his life. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I do. I do really like the theme of fishing trips, like throughout the entire series, just being the worst thing ever. And at this point, Lucille forces Buster upon Job, and <laughs> this is where Lucille says, "And I'm not going to leave him home alone with all this J U I C E around." And Buster goes, "I can spell mom. You spell juice." And I love how kind of petulantly Tony Hale says that. It's like. It's so great. And then obviously, you know, Lucille is going to Anyong's soccer awards ceremony. And then, of course, Anyong pipes up with Anyong. And then Lucille says, and I don't know the other, I don't need the other soccer moms knowing how old my first batch of kids are. And, <laughs> and Joe goes, I think that they're going to know that Anyong is not your. And of course, Anyong pipes up and he goes, Would somebody please tell this insufferable child of God? And I just love how quickly he gets. Uh, I just love Will Arnett's anger at Anyong. It's just like so perfect how, like, he, <laughs> the fact that Anyong just keeps saying Anyong. And um, Justin Lee Wade, I think it is, who plays Anyong. I, I, I don't want to. Justin Lee, sorry. Just, just Justin Lee. He does it so perfectly, just blankly saying Anyong every single time someone else says the word Anyong. Um, it's just so great. Um, and then obviously, uh, we, we see uh, Michael arriving at the hotel at the same time that Buster and Job are arriving at the hotel. And Michael says, um, I'm going to go fishing with my son here. We're going to have some fun. Real fun, okay? Not everything is strippers and booze and buckets of blood. <laughs> he, he doesn't he doesn't hesitate in having that list and finishing it with buckets of blood. And it's just like and then he goes, Why do you guys have buckets of blood? It's like he doesn't quite realise what he's saying until after he said it, and it's just so well played. And of course this is where we get the immortal line from um Busto. After Job explains that it's just corn syrup and red dye and he says juice and Buster goes We had unlimited juice? <laughs> this party is going to be off the hook. And uh, you could read that line as being a hint at something to come in the future. Yes, uh, that's what I read it Or it could just be a funny joke. 
And I think it's just a funny joke. It, it's probably Tony Hale's best delivery of any line in the whole Yeah. Show. Maybe his whole career. He's just amazing <laughs> at it. And I love how happy he is at the fact that it's unlimited juice. Um, and like his kind of... It's weird <laughs> because his obsession with juice only really happens in this episode. He kind of has like a... You know, Lucille obviously closely controls like his food anyway. But I just love how in this episode he's so desperate just to have some juice. Um which obviously will lead to some kind of bad stuff later on in the episode. And then obviously the wellness convention is also in the same hotel, which speaks to the cleverness of the the, the Arrested Development Writers Room, that they would go to the trouble of having these three different things all happening in the same hotel, which could be contrived, but in this particular way, you know, it works fine. And um, the drug rep... He, he gives the the new side effects for euphorazine to maybe, and uh, she says, delayed irritability? What do they mean by delayed? And Lindsay immediately says, it means it comes later. And this is ridiculous. <laughs> oh, that was <laughs> and so I, well-timed. And I love her line where she goes, uh, look at us, we're dressed like it's the 60s. It's the 21st century. We should be dressing like it's the 80s. Um, <laughs> which is quite a well-observed idea of how far back you should be nostalgic at any one particular point. And obviously, you know, this is where um, Lindsay quits and then obviously maybe also quits. And I love the, the, the act break because the drug rep says, You think you can handle it alone? Because if you don't perform, we don't validate. And as he says that last line, <laughs> the music is so dramatic <laughs> as though he said something really serious. But just basically... He's not going to get his parking validated. Is like super serious, and it's just oh, <laughs> it's, just, it's such a good act break as well. And obviously, uh, George Michael and Michael can't get to sleep um, because it's still very early, and everyone in the pool is playing Marco Polo at high volume. <laughs> and um, <laughs> George Michael, uh, you know, he says here he's got a finely tuned internal clock. Um, that's why he's such a, a good natural percussionist. Um, and he's not going to be able to fall asleep for another two hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> and I love the kind of precision of which he knows when he'll be able to fall asleep. Um, and then this is where he kind of does this this weird thing of... Um, he says, it's just I don't know when I'm going to get another chance like this, you know, to be there for family. I'd hate to miss it because I was too proud. And then Michael goes, wait a minute, too proud? What does it have to do with too proud? And George Michael goes, actually, that part was kind of just for you. I was worried it wasn't going to land unless I included the pride part. And so George Michael has kind of learned from, you know, both uh, Lucille and George Sr. on how to manipulate people quite effectively. Um, and then <laughs> I, love, um, I love the narrator's description of what, was ha what is happening at the bachelor party, where he says, Upstairs, Job was preparing to set up the accountant under his father's helpful gaze. And then, of course, on the television, George <laughs> says, who called the cops? And the narrator continues, and with the aid of some helpful gaze. And I just love the, the kind of, the two different ways of saying gaze, one after the other. Um, and then Job says, you told me to hire people that look like my friends, which is possibly one of the saddest things that Job will say in the entire <laughs> series, where he's basically admitting he doesn't have any actual friends, so he's had to hire the hot cops. Um, making their return here um, and they <laughs> and he says I asked them specifically not to come dressed as cops you better change now um, and he goes butch guys I want a butch 
And obviously, when they change, they change into um, the kind of traditional Native American costume, and one's a construction worker, and another one's a fireman. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, they change into a lot of stripper outfits that coincide with the uh, lineup of the village people, which, you know, is just just subtle, um, you know, visual joke. Um, and obviously, this is where Buster gets into the juice. <laughs> And um, he's just running around screaming, I love juice, <laughs> which, which I just love. I love, I just, I just love Tony Hale running through this, this scene screaming, I love juice. And then, you know, we get Tobias performing alone because obviously he needs to get his uh, parking validated. Uh, talking about the only ballad, the solution ever attempted. And I love the fact that he, he gives <laughs> the band a shorter, like, nickname. And of course, his weird gender, gender swapping comes into play when he says that he feels a bit like a Mary without a Peter and a Paul. <laughs> and then, of course, he starts up singing, There's No I in Timo Cell. And then Job's wife, obviously being a fan of the band, comes in and adds the, the line about, and for once we'll be in sync. I just, I just, I love it because at the very end, George Michael kind of comes in with his woodblock a couple of times, and then he goes. <laughs> Timo Sill is no longer available. Please try either group hug bond out or consult your own wellness guide. Timo Sill. <laughs> and I love Tobias putting his hand on George Michael's shoulder as if he's about to say something nice and then immediately saying, you're out of the band. <laughs> and that, kind of, that kind of finishes that storyline for both George Michael and the, uh, the, the natural good time family band solution. But I just, I just love that ending because it's so perfect that Tobias would allow him to play the woodblock a couple of times and allow him to to read out the side effects and then just kick him out of the band. <laughs> um, and then obviously, you know, the bachelor party, the narrator tells us Gilligan had arrived and the con was in full swing. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we find out that Ira is the designated driver um, and so he's not going to drink. <laughs> and, and Buster had finished the juice and went to look for his sugar, um, went to look for a sugar fix, sorry, and the stripper is kind of like in the cake, passed out already, um, and, and then obviously this is where Michael arrives, <laughs> he says that he's here to support his brother, and uh, I love how he goes, like all these uh, hot men, and Ira, <laughs> I love how he describes the hot cops <laughs> as hot men, Um and then obviously George Senior tries to get him out of there. And then Michael goes into the back room and sees that the stripper is passed out. Buster is, basically he's been, as the stripper kind of came to, she punched Buster. And he's on the floor kind of with a juice around his face that looks like blood. And, you know, when Michael says, I'm calling the cops, Bix says, we're changing again, guys. <laughs> Which I just love how... <laughs> I love how the hot cops are always on, basically. Like, if you just yell out the, the name of cops, they'll immediately change into cops. Um, and, of course, this is where we get Job saying, Gilligan killed the skipper, and then he says stripper. That was the line that, uh, when you were, like, asking for people to take part in, in this, that was the line that immediately left down. I said, I want to talk about the episode with that line, because <laughs> that joke is such... It's such a brilliant punchline, and I love the fact the show spends... Basically, its entire running length slowly building <laughs> towards it, 
Uh, it's kind of like the show's approach to humor in microcosm. <laughs> They'll seed a few things early on and then just build to a punchline that you don't see coming, but which is is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's so well built. And then, of course, George Senior is like, "You're pulling a rip card. Are you nuts?" And I just love, I love him screaming from the TV, <laughs> being so angry. And then Job is like, uh, "Take the honeymoon tickets. Get out of the country. Save yourself." And I was like, "I'm not drunk." Bix made me the de- designated driver, and I love Job's anger at the hot cop named Bix. <laughs> He's just like Bix. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I, I, I love how like then the, the kind of the stripper runs out. This is where Michael realizes they were trying to set up Ira, and then obviously, you know, he realizes it wasn't Job's idea. It was George Senior's idea, and then obviously, you know, George Senior says Job screwed it up, uh, which he did, and he always does. And then, you know, in a nice bit of solidarity between the brothers, Michael says, you don't have to take that. And Job says, what the hell am I supposed to do? And Michael just passes in the remote and says, here. And of course, you know, George is like, oh, no, 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 don't you dare. And then Michael says, do it. And then Job switches him off <laughs> on the TV. And it's nice to see Job kind of assert himself for once. Uh, I think this is, it's, it's always nice when Michael kind of backs Job up. And it happens a few times throughout the run of the series, but for the most part, they're kind of a little adversarial, mostly because of their father. Um, you know, for the first 13 episodes of this season, mostly because they both were in love with Marta, or at least one was in love with Marta and the other one had Marta. Um, so it's nice when they actually kind of back <laughs> each other up and they stand up to their father. And there is a nice moment when Job calls Michael Hermano as a yeah, uh, he does. nice touch uh, callback to that, that whole rivalry. Yeah, he says, what do you say, hermano? Help me clean up this mess? And Michael says, what the hell? And then, of course, this is where we get like the punchline on top of the punchline, where <laughs> Job's wife turns up and says, I'm in love with your brother. And Michael, <laughs> and then Job immediately <laughs> turns and punches Michael, saying, son of a bitch. And then Job's wife says, in law, Tobias. Sorry, I should have finished that thought. <laughs> And that's how the episode ends. With, but I just, I just, I just love that. Like, I, I love like the fact that they're they're so friendly and and kind of for one minute, and then Job's wife just says the word brother, and then he immediately punches Michael. Um, and then obviously we get to the on the next, and Buster sees Michael knocked out, and he thinks that he killed Michael. <laughs> And, uh, and Job <laughs> says, yeah, but on the plus side, you got punched in the face, which, of course, itself is a callback to uh, Beef Consom, where Buster was desperate to get punched in the face by somebody. But in the end, he just kind of balled up. And then Michael solves the, mis- the mystery of the missing money. And he says, uh, wait a minute. Ira was a signatory to all of these accounts. Get me Ira Gilligan. And the narrator says, and Gilligan fulfills his destiny. And we see Ira is on an island. And the phone is ringing and he just says, let it ring. Um, and that's the end of the episode. And, you know, what are your guys' thoughts on this episode just in general? Oh, well, first off, I think the fact that we've talked about it so much shows just how dense it is with plot. You think when when I kind of like thought of the episode before rewatching it, I thought, oh, it's the one where they have the bachelor party and the stripper. But there is so much in it. I'd completely forgotten about the... Dr. Fune Kane's 100% natural good time family band solution being in this episode. Uh, and what I really love about it is it's such a densely packed farce. Like everything is building up to the bachelor party and all of these threads uh, colliding. And I just, I just really love how 
well it manages to balance all that stuff and how well paced it is. And even though it is dense and fast and manic in the way that the show is at its best, it still makes complete sense. And it's one of those episodes where I think, because it's not too tied into any ongoing plot lines, it's one of those ones that you could totally show to a newcomer and say, yeah, this is this is what the show is about. And they could, they could follow along and really get a sense of the show's sense of humour. Um, also, in terms of just one thing that I noted... The uh, stripper is played by an actress called Lauren Bowles, who yeah. would later go on to be a regular on True Blood, yeah. and is Julia Louis-Dreyfus's half-sister, <laughs> which I didn't realise. Yes, yeah. I didn't mention it because I figured someone else might mention it, but yeah. Uh, Lauren Bowles. She played a witch, I think, on like season... I want to say season three and four was kind of when it they had... Probably like, the witch. Yeah. She was around for a while. Four is yeah. when they did the magic. And Jesse, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, this is... This is definitely a really good episode, densely packed and everything. Uh, like, for some reason... You're not going to start hating on it like you started hating on Clueless. I didn't hate on Clueless. <laughs> I just... I'm before my time. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> no. Uh, you go, this, you go uh, on. I, I, but for some reason, I thought the all the episodes were a little bit more interconnected. And, like, I was expecting a little bit more interconnectivity and stuff. But this one's like a really good, like kind of st- almost standalone episode. The only ongoing thing I think is the um, the government trying to bug them, which is kind of handled in a cutscene. There's like a government agent is trying to f- fix the air conditioning, which he's clearly not doing. He's putting a camera into the vent, and Michael is kind of that's how he finds out that the <laughs> bachelor party's gone ahead. Is he's calling Ira, and he finds out that Ira's been invited to it, and. I think we're meant to get in that cutscene that the trouble with the the kind of the 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 office being really hot and all that kind of is because of the government of planting stuff and it's messing with the the internal kind of air conditioning stuff. That um, makes sense. That's how it appeared to me. Yeah, but obviously it, cutting it out doesn't make any difference because it's just a funny joke of them being hot and cold and switching offices. Yeah, so that, but that whole beginning, like, I want to say, like, two or three minutes or so, with just the, with the three people being, like, it's hot, it's cold and stuff, that was just, it was just perfectly edited, and probably, like, it would, I don't know, like, I just, I give so much props to just everyone for, like, just that three minutes or so in the beginning. Yeah, I also want to mention there's another cutscene which has a little bit of just t- Tobias by himself. Um, just clapping and doing backing vocals while no one else is there. <laughs> so he's just saying, he's just clapping and saying words into the microphone every now and again as though someone else was singing. And it's it's a bizarre, I can kind of see why they cut it out because it just, it's just really odd to then put it on top of like all the stuff with the wood block and Job's wife and everything which like comes straight after it. Um, but it's it's quite fun. There's also, um, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a cameo in that cutscene there's a guy who's got like a um, a suit that is all covered in magnets. Um, one of the stalls actually says um, like magnets or magnots is like their their stand, like um, which is like a, a really weird kind of like background joke um, that they that they do. Um, but uh, as he walks past, the um, tambourine kind of sticks to his suit. But the guy who's wearing that like all magnet suit is one of the government agents from the previous episode. Like it's the same actor, so I think the idea is that like the government have kind of followed them to this hotel, <laughs> or he's following Michael, or he's following Gilligan. Like there's 
basically they're in the hotel, but obviously they they didn't expand on that, so it's just like a, a, a little cameo. Uh, but yeah, it is it is a really good like kind of stand out stand out episode. Even though there are actually you know like the the callback to um, Buster wanting to be punched, you know Buster saying hey adopted brother, you know like that kind of thing. Job saying hermano. Um, Cloudmere is actually featured at the the bachelor party. If you look at the vodka bottles, they're Cloudmere vodka. Um, Lupe has a Stanford Institute of Cartography, which is obviously a reference back to the pilot. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> when when Michael and um, and George Michael are sleeping, they're sleeping the same way that they were in the pilot when when they were like next to each other. Um, you know, all this stuff about Tobias as well, you know, like him saying a Mary without Peter and Paul, the fact that he wears a woman's coat, you know, all like these little things are kind of, even the hot cops are like, a, they're a callback in themselves. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so all of that stuff is kind of like, if you've never seen the show, those jokes don't really matter. But if you've seen the show, that's just a whole lot of like kind of, you know, extra, um, extra stuff. Also, I don't know if you noticed it, but when they're at the cocktail party, Buster is hiding next to a doorpost. Um, because you oh, can always tell a Milford man. I did notice that. <laughs> I mean, I guess he's a he's a Milford man, and that's why I didn't see him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that's, that's what they're meant to do. Um, yeah. And also, there's a line where Job says, when, they, when they're talking about if Job would be a father, he says, I might be a father. And obviously, that's a reference to everyone's favourite soccer player, Steve Holt. Steve Holt? football player, should I say. Yeah. Steve Holt! Um, so, yeah. I, so, I, you know, there are lots of little tiny callbacks and kind of hints of stuff to come. And obviously, the, even the title of it, like Best Man for the Job, is a play on Job's name. And if you've never seen the show, the fact that it's called Best Man for the Gob is kind of weird. Um so yeah, it works as a standalone, but also there's, there's there's you know there's lots of kind of good stuff, and I just wanted to quickly one final thing: Joe being married means that he wears lots of weird sweaters throughout this show, um, or jumpers as as we would say over here, um, and as you uh, throughout the whole episode, he's he's always wearing like kind of pastel jumpers throughout this episode. He has like five or six of them throughout the throughout this one episode, but that's kind of like the influence of. Um, his wife. Uh, so, uh, do you have anything to plug? And I'm going to start with uh, Jesse first. Well, I have two things to plug. Um, first off, uh, I have Turn to Page, which is a Choose Your Own Adventure book podcast. We read a Choose Your Own Adventure book with uh, with a couple people normally, and we kind of review slash goof and you know just go through it. Uh, I find it to be real fun. And I also have another podcast called random sampling with my co-host carrie and we talk about uh random topics via the random article button on wikipedia great stuff and what are the twitter addresses for those two? Oh yeah okay the twitter okay uh you can find the find both of them on uh at turn to page pod and at underscore RS pod and Edwin. Uh, yeah, I co-host the podcast Shot vs Shot with my friend Matt. We talk about a different film, TV show, or broader theme every episode. So we might talk about. Most recently, we did an episode on the year 1986 in movies. We're going to do an episode 
in mere hours about method acting in movies and things like that. So it changes week to week and it's pretty fun. Uh, I also write a, a website called amightyfineblog.com where I write about film and TV, although not so much recently because I've been working a lot and I just haven't had time to do anything. Uh, I'm on Twitter personally as at Edwin J Davis, which is D-A-V-I-E-S, and the podcast is at SRS underscore podcast. Great stuff. Um, thanks to both of you for joining me on this episode. On the next episode of I've Made a Huge Mistake, uh, we will be covering episode 20. Uh, my guests for that will be Lindsay Busco and Eric Hauser. And we will be discussing when you get lemons, you make lemonade. And uh, that is precisely what Uncle Oscar does. I look forward to talking about that next time. Um, otherwise, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye now. Today's episode is brought to you by the Natural Life Food Company. Providers of Timosil and Euphorazine. Ask your doctor if Timosil or Euphorazine is right for you. The Natural Life Food Company is a division of ChemGrow, an Alan Crane acquisition, and part of the Squim Group. Squim, we keep you alive.